0: Part 2 of The Dead by James Joyce. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gabriel could not listen while Mary Jane was playing her Academy piece, full of runs and difficult passages, to the hushed drawing-room. He liked music. But the piece she was playing had no melody for him and he doubted whether it had any melody for the other listeners though they had begged mary jane to play something The four young men who had come from the refreshment room to stand in the doorway at the sound of the piano had gone away quietly in couples after a few minutes the only persons who seemed to follow the music were mary jane herself her hands racing along the keyboard or lifted from it at the pauses like those of a priestess in momentary imprecation and aunt kate standing at her elbow to turn the page Gabriel's eyes, irritated by the floor, which glittered with beeswax under a heavy chandelier, wandered to the wall above the piano. A picture of the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet hung there, and beside it was the picture of the two murdered princes in the tower, which Aunt Julia had worked in red, blue, and brown wools when she was a girl. Probably in the school they had gone to as girls, that kind of work had been taught for one year. His mother had worked for him, as they brought the present, a waistcoat of purple tabinet, with little foxes' heads upon it lined with brown satin and having round mulberry buttons. It was strange that his mother had had no musical talent, though Aunt Kate used to call her the brains-carrier of the Morkin family. Both she and Julia had always seemed a little proud of their serious and matronly sister. Her photograph stood before the pier-glass. She held an open book on her knees and was pointing out something in it to Constantine, who, dressed in a man-of-war suit, lay at her feet. It was she who had chosen the name of her sons, for she was very sensible of the dignity of family life. Thanks to her, Constantine was now senior curate in Balbriggan, and, thanks to her, Gabriel himself had taken his degree in the Royal University. A shadow passed over his face as he remembered her sullen opposition to his marriage. Some slighting phrases she had used still rankled in his memory. She had once spoken of Greta as being country cute, and that was not true of Greta at all. It was greta who had nursed her during her last long illness in their house at monkstown he knew that mary jane must be near the end of her piece for she was playing again the opening melody with runs of scales after every bar and while he waited for the end the resentment died down in his heart the piece ended with a trill of octaves in the treble and a final deep octave in the bass great applause greeted mary jane as blushing and rolling up her music nervously she escaped from the room the most vigorous clapping came from the four young men in the doorway who had gone away to the refreshment-room at the beginning of the piece but had come back when the piano had stopped lancers were arranged gabriel found himself partnered with miss Ivers. she was a frank-mannered talkative young lady with a freckled face and prominent brown eyes she did not wear a low-cut bodice and the large brooch which was fixed in the front of her collar bore on it an irish device and motto when they had taken their places she said abruptly "'I have a crow to pluck with you.' "'With me?' said Gabriel. "'She nodded her head gravely. "'What is it?' said Gabriel, smiling at her solemn manner. "'Who is G.C.? answered Miss Ivers, turning her eyes upon him. "'Gabriel coloured, and was about to knit his brows, as if he did not understand, when she said bluntly, "'Oh, innocent Amy, I have found out that you write for the Daily Express. Now aren't you ashamed of yourself?' "'Why should I be ashamed of myself?' asked Gabriel, blinking his eyes and trying to smile. "'Well, I am ashamed of you,' said Miss Ivors frankly. "'To say you'd write for a paper like that! I didn't think you were a West Briton!' A look of perplexity appeared on Gabriel's face. It was true that he wrote a literary column every Wednesday in the Daily Express, for which he was paid fifteen shillings, but that did not make him a West Briton, surely. The books he received for review were almost more welcome than the poetry check, he loved to feel the covers and turn over the pages of newly-printed books nearly every day when his teaching in the college was ended he used to wander down the quays to the second-hand booksellers to hickeys on bachelor's walk to webb's or massy's on ashton's quay or to o'clohesy's in the by-street he did not know how to meet her charge he wanted to say that literature was above politics but they were friends of many years standing and their careers had been parallel first at the university and then as teachers He could not risk a grandiose phrase with her. He continued blinking his eyes and trying to smile, and murmured lamely that he saw nothing political in writing reviews of books. When their turn to cross had come he was still perplexed and inattentive. Miss Ivers promptly took his hand in a warm grasp and said in a soft, friendly tone, Of course I was only joking. Come on, we cross now. When they were together again she spoke of the university question, and Gabriel felt more at ease. A friend of hers had shown her his review of Browning's poems. That was how she had found out the secret. But she liked the review immensely. Then she said suddenly, Oh, Mr. Conroy, will you come for an excursion to the Aran Isles this summer? We're going to stay there a whole month. It will be a splendid out in the Atlantic. You ought to come. Mr. Clancy is coming, and Mr. Kilkelly, and Kathleen Kearney. It would be splendid for Greta, too, if she'd come. She's from Connacht, isn't she? Her people are, said Gabriel shortly. ''But you will come, won't you?'' said Miss Ivers, laying her warm hand eagerly on his arm. ''The fact is,'' said Gabriel, ''I have just arranged to go.'' ''Go where?'' asked Miss Ivers. ''Well, you know, every year I go for a cycling tour with some fellows, and so...'' ''But where?'' asked Miss Ivers. ''Well, we usually go to France, or Belgium, or perhaps Germany,'' said Gabriel awkwardly. ''But why do you go to France and Belgium?'' said Miss Ivers, ''instead of visiting your own land?'' Well, said Gabriel, it's partly to keep in touch with the languages, and partly for a change. And haven't you your own language to keep in touch with, Irish? said Miss Ivors. Well, said Gabriel, if it comes to that, you know Irish is not my language. Their neighbours had turned to listen to the cross-examination. Gabriel glanced right and left nervously, and tried to keep his good-humour under the ordeal which was making a blush invade his forehead. And haven't you your own land to visit? continued Miss Ivers that you know nothing of your own people and your own country oh to tell you the truth retorted Gabriel suddenly I'm sick of my own country sick of it why asked Miss Ivers Gabriel did not answer for his retort had heated him why repeated Miss Ivers they had to go visiting together and as he had not answered her Miss Ivers said warmly of course you have no answer Gabriel tried to cover his agitation by taking part in the dance with great energy. He avoided her eyes, for he had seen a sour expression on her face. But when they met in a long chain, he was surprised to feel his hand firmly pressed. She looked at him from under her brows for a moment quizzically until he smiled. Then, just as the chain was about to start again, she stood on tiptoe and whispered into his ear, West Britain when the lances were over gabriel went away to a remote corner of the room where freddie mellon's mother was sitting she was a stout feeble old woman with white hair her voice had a catch in it like her son's and she stuttered slightly she had been told that freddie had come and that he was nearly all right gabriel asked her whether she had had a good crossing she lived with her married daughter in glasgow and came to dublin on a visit once a year she answered placidly that she had had a beautiful crossing and that the captain had been most attentive to her She spoke also of the beautiful house her daughter kept in Glasgow, and of all the friends they had there. While her tongue rambled on, Gabriel tried to banish from his mind all memory of the unpleasant incident with Miss Ivers. Of course, the girl, or woman, or whatever she was, was an enthusiast, but there was a time for all things. Perhaps he ought not to have answered her like that, but she had no right to call him a West Briton before people, even in joke." She had tried to make him ridiculous before people heckling him and staring at him with her rabbit's eyes. He saw his wife making her way towards him through the waltzing couples. When she reached him, she said into his ear, Gabriel, Aunt Kate wants to know won't you carve the goose as usual? Miss Daly will carve the harm and I'll do the pudding. All right, said Gabriel. She's sending in the younger ones first as soon as this waltz is over so that we'll have the table to ourselves. Were you dancing? asked Gabriel. "'Of course I was. Didn't you see me? What row had you with Molly Ivers?' "'No row. Why, did she say so?' "'Something like that. I'm trying to get that Mr. Darcy to sing. He's full of conceit, I think.' "'There was no row,' said Gabriel moodily. "'Only she wanted me to go for a trip to the west of Ireland, and I said I wouldn't.' His wife clasped her hands excitedly and gave a little jump. "'Oh, do go, Gabriel,' she cried. "'I'd love to see Galway again.' "'You can go if you like.' said gabriel coldly she looked at him for a moment then turned to mrs mallins and said there's a nice husband for you mrs mallins while she was threading her way back across the room mrs mallins without adverting to the interruption went on to tell gabriel what beautiful places there were in scotland and beautiful scenery her son-in-law brought them every year to the lakes and they used to go fishing her son-in-law was a splendid fisher one day he caught a beautiful big fish, and the man at hotel cooked it for their dinner. Gabriel hardly heard what she said. Now that supper was coming near, he began to think again about his speech and about the quotation. When he saw Freddie Malins coming across the room to visit his mother, Gabriel left the chair free for him and retired into the embrasure of the window. The room had already cleared, and from the back room came the clatter of plates and knives. Those who still remained in the drawing-room seemed tired of dancing, and were conversing quietly in little groups. Gabriel's warm, trembling fingers tapped the cold pine of the window. How cool it must be outside! How pleasant it would be to walk out alone, first along by the river and then through the park. The snow would be lying in the branches of the trees, and forming a bright cap on the top of the Wellington Monument. How much more pleasant it would be there than at the supper-table! He ran over the headings of his speech. Irish hospitality, sad memories, the tree graces, Paris, the quotation from Browning." He repeated to himself a phrase he had written in his review. One feels that one is listening to a thought tormented music. Miss Livers had praised the review. Was she sincere? Had she really any life of her own behind all her propagandism? There had never been any ill-feeling between them until that night it unnerved him to think that she would be at the supper table looking up at him while he spoke with her critical quizzing eyes perhaps she would not be sorry to see him fail in his speech an idea came into his mind and gave him courage he would say alluding to aunt kate and aunt julia "'Ladies and gentlemen, the generation which is now on the wane among us "'may have had its faults, but for my part, I think, "'it had certain qualities of hospitality, of humour, of humanity, "'which the new and very serious and hyper-educated generation "'that is growing up around us seems to me to lack.' "'Very good. That was one for Miss Ivers. "'What did he care that his aunts were only two ignorant old women?' "'A murmur in the room attracted his attention.' Mr. Brown was advancing from the door, gallantly escorting Aunt Julia, who leaned upon his arm, smiling and hanging her head. An irregular musketry of applause escorted her also as far as the piano, and then, as Mary Jane seated herself on the stool and Aunt Julia, no longer smiling, half-turned so as to pitch her voice fairly into the room, gradually ceased. Gabriel recognized the prelude. It was that of an old song of Aunt Julia's, arrayed for the bridal. Her voice, strong and clear in tone, attacked with great spirit the runs which embellished the air, and though she sang very rapidly, she did not miss even the smallest of the grace notes. To follow the voice, without looking at the singer's face, was to feel and share the excitement of swift and secure flight. Gabriel applauded loudly with all the others at the close of the song, and loud applause was borne in from the invisible supper-table. It sounded so genuine that little color struggled into Aunt Julia's face as she bent to replace in the music stand the old leather-bound songbook that had her initials on the cover. Freddie Mellins, who had listened with his head perched sideways to hear her better, was still applauding when everyone else had ceased, and talking animatedly to his mother, who nodded her head gravely and slowly in acquiescence. At last, when he could clap no more, he stood up suddenly and hurried across the room to Aunt Julia, whose hand he seized and held in both his hands, shaking it when words failed him, or the catch in his voice proved too much for him. "'I was just telling my mother,' he said, "'I never heard you sing so well, never. No, I never heard your voice as good as this night. Now would you believe that? Now that's the truth. Upon my word and honour, that's the truth. I never heard your voice sound so fresh and so, so clear and so fresh. Never!' Aunt Julia smiled broadly and murmured something about compliments as she released her hand from his grasp. Mr. Brown extended his open hand towards her, and said to those who were near him, in the manner of a showman introducing a prodigy to an audience, "'Miss Julia Morkan, my latest discovery!' He was laughing very heartily at this himself, when Freddy Mallins turned to him and said, "'Well, Brown, if you're serious, you might make a worse discovery!' All I can say is I never heard her sing half so well as long as I am coming here, and that's the honest truth. Neither did I, said Mr. Brown. I think her voice has greatly improved. Aunt Julia shrugged her shoulders and said with meek pride, Thirty years ago I hadn't a bad voice, as voices go. I often told Julia, said Aunt Kate emphatically, that she was simply thrown away in that choir, but she never would be said by me. She turned as if to appeal to the good sense of the others against a refractory child, while Aunt Julia gazed in front of her, a vague smile of reminiscence playing on her face. "'No,' continued Aunt Kate, "'she wouldn't be said or led by anyone "'slaving there in that choir night and day, night and day, six o'clock on Christmas morning, and all for what?' "'Well, isn't it for the honour of God, Aunt Kate?' asked Mary Jane, twisting round on a piano stool and smiling aunt kate turned fiercely on her niece and said i know all about the honour of god mary jane but i think it's not at all honourable for the pope to turn out the women out of the choirs that have slaved there all their lives and put little whipper-snappers of boys over their heads i suppose it is for the good of the church if the pope does it but it's not just mary jane and it's not right she had worked herself into a passion and would have continued in defence of her sister, for it was a sore subject with her, but Mary Jane, seeing that all the dancers had come back, intervened pacifically. "'Now, Aunt Kate, you're giving scandal to Mr. Brown, who is of the other persuasion.' And Kate turned to Mr. Brown, who was grinning at this allusion to his religion, and said hastily, "'Oh, I don't question the Pope's being right. I am only a stupid old woman, and I wouldn't presume to do such a thing. But there's such a thing as common everyday politeness and gratitude.' And if I were in Julia's place, I'd tell that Father Healy straight up to his face. And besides, Aunt Kate, said Mary Jane, we really are all hungry, and when we are hungry we are all very quarrelsome. And when we are thirsty we are also quarrelsome, added Mr. Brown. So that we had better go to supper, said Mary Jane, and finish the discussion afterwards. On the landing outside the drawing-room, Gabriel found his wife and Mary Jane, trying to persuade Miss Ivers to stay for supper. But Miss Ivers, who had put on her hat and was buttoning her cloak, would not stay. She did not feel in the least hungry, and she had already overstayed her time. "'But only for ten minutes, Molly,' said Mrs. Conroy. "'That won't delay you.' "'To take a pick itself,' said Mary Jane. "'After all your dancing.' "'Oh, I really couldn't,' said Miss Ivers. "'I'm afraid you didn't enjoy yourself at all,' said Mary Jane hopelessly. "'Ever so much, I assure you,' said Miss Ivers. "'But you really must let me run off now.' "'But how can you get home?' asked Mrs. Conroy. "'Oh, it's only two steps up the quay.' "'Gabriel hesitated a moment and said, "'If you will allow me, Miss Ivers, I'll see you home if you really are obliged to go.' "'But Miss Ivers broke away from them. "'I won't hear of it,' she cried. "'For goodness' sake, go into your suppers and don't mind me. "'I'm quite well able to take care of myself.' "'Well, you're the comical girl, Molly,' said Mrs. Conroy frankly. "'Bannock live!' cried Miss Ivers with a laugh as she ran down the staircase. Mary Jane gazed after her, a moody, puzzled expression on her face, while Mrs. Conroy leaned over the banisters to listen for the hall door. Gabriel asked himself was he the cause of her abrupt departure, but she did not seem to be in ill-humour. She had gone away laughing. He stared blankly down the staircase. At the moment Aunt Kate came toddling out of the supper-room, almost wringing her hands in despair. "'Where is Gabriel?' she cried. "'Where on earth is Gabriel?' there's every one waiting in there stage to let and nobody to carve the goose here i am aunt kate cried gabriel with sudden animation ready to carve a flock of geese if necessary a fat brown goose lay at one end of the table and at the other end on a bed of creased paper strewn with sprigs of parsley lay a great ham stripped of its outer skin and peppered over with crust crumbs a neat paper frill round its shin and beside this was a round of spiced beef. Between these rival ends ran parallel lines of side-dishes, two little minsters of jelly, red and yellow, a shallow dish full of blocks of blanc-mange and red jam, a large green leaf-shaped dish with a stalk-shaped handle on which lay bunches of purple raisins and peeled almonds, a companion dish on which lay a solid rectangle of Smyrna figs, a dish of custard topped with grated nutmeg, a small bowl full of chocolates and sweets wrapped in gold and silver papers, and a glass vase in which stood some tall celery stalks. In the centre of the table there stood, as sentries, to a fruit-stand which upheld a pyramid of oranges and American apples, two squat old-fashioned decanters of cut-glass, one containing port and the other dark sherry. On the closed square piano a pudding in a huge yellow dish lay in waiting. And behind it were three squads of bottles of stout and ale and minerals, drawn up according to the colors of their uniforms, the first two black, with brown and red labels, the third and smallest, squad white, with transverse green sashes. Gabriel took his seat boldly at the head of the table, and, having looked to the edge of the carver, plunged his fork firmly into the goose. He felt quite at ease now, for he was an expert carver, and liked nothing better than to find himself at the head of a well-laden table miss furlong what shall i send you he asked a wing or a slice of the breast just a small slice of the breast miss higgins what for you oh anything at all mr conroy while gabriel and miss daly exchanged plates of goose and plates of ham and spiced beef lily went from guest to guest with a dish of hot floury potatoes wrapped in a white napkin This was Mary Jane's idea, and she had also suggested applesauce for the goose, but Aunt Kate had said that plain roast goose without any applesauce had always been good enough for her, and she hoped she might never eat worse. Mary Kate waited on her pupils, and saw that they got the best slices, and Aunt Kate and Aunt Julia opened and carried across from the piano bottles of stout and ale for the gentlemen and bottles of minerals for the ladies. There was a great deal of confusion and laughter and noise the noise of orders and counter-orders, of knives and forks, of corks and glass-stoppers. Gabriel began to carve second helpings as soon as he had finished the first round, without serving himself. Everyone protested loudly so that he compromised by taking a long draught of stout, for he had found the carving hot work. Mary Jane settled down quietly to her supper. But Aunt Kate and Aunt Julia were still toddling round the table, walking on each other's heels, getting in each other's way, and giving each other unheeded orders. Mr. Brown begged of them to sit down and eat their suppers, and so did Gabriel. But they said there was time enough, so that at last Freddie Malins stood up and, capturing Aunt Kate, plumped her down on her chair amid general laughter. When everyone had been well served, Gabriel said, smiling now if anyone wants a little more of what vulgar people call stuffing let him or her speak a chorus of voices invited him to begin his own supper and lily came forward with three potatoes which she had reserved for him very well said gabriel amiably as he took another preparatory draft kindly forget my existence ladies and gentlemen for a few minutes he set to his supper and took no part in the conversation with which the table covered lily's removal of the plates THE SUBJECT OF TALK WAS THE OPERA COMPANY, WHICH WAS THEN AT THE THEATRE ROYAL. MR. BARTLE DARCY, THE TENOR, A DARK COMPLEXIONED YOUNG MAN WITH A SMART MUSTACHE, PRAISED VERY HIGHLY THE LEADING CONTRALTO OF THE COMPANY, BUT MISS Forlong THOUGHT SHE HAD A RATHER VULGAR STYLE OF PRODUCTION. FREDDIE MALINS SAID THERE WAS A NEGRO CHIEFTAIN SINGING IN THE SECOND PART OF THE Gaiety PANTOMIME, WHO HAD ONE OF THE FINEST TENOR VOICES HE HAD EVER HEARD. ''Have you heard him?'' he asked Mr. Bartle-Darcy across the table. ''No,'' answered Mr. Bartle-Darcy carelessly. ''Because,'' Freddy Mellons explained, ''now I'd be curious to hear your opinion of him. I think he's a grand voice.'' ''It takes Teddy to find out the really good things,'' said Mr. Brown familiarly to the table. ''And why couldn't he have a voice too?'' asked Freddy Mellons sharply. ''Is it because he's only a black?'' Nobody answered this question, and Mary Jane led the table back to legitimate opera. One of her pupils had given her a pass for Mignon. Of course it was very fine, she said, but it made her think of poor Georgina Burns. Mr. Brown could go back farther still, to the old Italian companies that used to come to Dublin. Tegens, Ilma de Murska, Campanini, the great Trebelli, Guglini, Ravelli, Aramburo. Those were the days, he said when there was something like singing to be heard in Dublin. He told, too, of how the top gallery of the old royal used to be packed night after night, of how one night an Italian tenor had sung five encores to Let Me Like a Soldier Fall, introducing a high sea every time, and of how the gallery boys would sometimes in their enthusiasm unyoke the horses from the carriage of some great prima donna and pull her themselves through the streets to her hotel why did they never play the grand old operas now he asked denora Lucrezia borgia because they could not get the voices to sing them that was why oh well said mr bartle d'arcy i presume there are as good singers today as there were then where are they asked mr brown defiantly in london paris milan said mr bartle d'arcy warmly I suppose Caruso, for example, is quite as good, if not better, than any of the men you have mentioned." "'Maybe so,' said Mr. Brown, "'but I may tell you I doubt it strongly.' "'Oh, I'd give anything to hear Caruso sing,' said Mary Jane. "'For me,' said Aunt Kate, who had been picking a bone, "'there was only one tenor, to please me, I mean, but I suppose none of you ever heard of him.' "'Who was he, Miss Morkan?' asked Mr. Bartle-Darcy politely his name said aunt kate was parkinson i heard him when he was in his prime and i think he had then the purest tenor voice that ever was put into a man's throat strange said mr bartle d'arcy i never even heard of him yes yes miss morkan is right said mr brown i remember hearing of old parkinson but he's too far back for me a beautiful pure sweet mellow english tenor said aunt kate with enthusiasm gabriel having finished the huge pudding was transferred to the table. The clatter of forks and spoons began again. Gabriel's wife served out spoonfuls of the pudding and passed the plates down the table. Midway down they were held up by Mary Jane, who replenished them with raspberry or orange jelly or with blancmange and jam. The pudding was of Aunt Julia's making, and she received praises for it from all quarters. She herself said that it was not quite brown enough. "'Well, I hope,' Miss morkan said mr brown that i'm brown enough for you because you know i'm all brown all the gentlemen except gabriel ate some of the pudding out of compliment to aunt julia as gabriel never ate sweets the celery had been left for him freddie mallins also took a stalk of celery and ate it with his pudding he had been told that celery was a capital thing for the blood and he was just then under doctor's care mrs mallins who had been silent all through the supper, said that her son was going down to Mount Mallory in a week or so. The table then spoke of Mount Mallory, how bracing the air was down there, how hospitable the monks were, and how they never asked for a penny piece from their guests. "'And do you mean to say,' asked Mr. Brown incredulously, "'that a chap can go down there and put up there as if it were a hotel and live off the fat of the land, and then come away without paying anything?' "'Oh, most people give some donation to the monastery when they leave,' said Mary Jane i wish we had an institution like that in our church said mr brown candidly he was astonished to hear that the monks never spoke got up at two in the morning and slept in their coffins he asked what they did it for that's the rule of the order said aunt kate firmly yes but why asked mr brown aunt kate repeated that it was the rule that was all mr brown still seemed not to understand Freddy Malins explained to him as best he could that the monks were trying to make up for the sins committed by all the sinners in the outside world. The explanation was not very clear, for Mr. Brown grinned and said, "'I like that idea very much, but wouldn't a comfortable spring bed do them as well as a coffin?' "'The coffin,' said Mary Jane, "'is to remind them of their last end.' as the subject had grown lugubrious, it was buried in a silence of the table, during which Mrs. Mallins could be heard saying to her neighbour in an indistinct undertone, They are very good men, the monks, very pious men. The raisins, and almonds, and figs, and apples, and oranges, and chocolates, and sweets were now passed about the table, and Aunt Julia invited all the guests to have either port or sherry. At first Mr. Bartle-Darcy refused to take either but one of his neighbours nudged him and whispered something to him, upon which he allowed his glass to be filled. Gradually, as the last glasses were being filled, the conversation ceased. A pause followed, broken only by the noise of the wine and by unsettlings of chairs. The misses Morkan, all three, looked down at the tablecloth. Someone coughed once or twice, and then a few gentlemen patted the table gently as a signal for silence. The silence came, and Gabriel pushed back his chair. The patting at once grew louder in encouragement, and then ceased altogether. Gabriel leaned his ten trembling fingers on the tablecloth and smiled nervously at the company. Meeting a row of upturned faces, he raised his eyes to the chandelier. The piano was playing a waltz tune, and he could hear the skirts sweeping against the drawing-room door. People, perhaps, were standing in the snow on the quay outside, gazing up at the lighted windows and listening to the waltz music. The air was pure there in the distance lay a park where the trees were weighted with snow. The Wellington Monument wore a gleaming cap of snow that flashed westward over the white field of fifteen acres. He began. "'Ladies and gentlemen, it has fallen to my lot this evening, as in years past, to perform a very pleasing task, but a task for which I am afraid my poor powers, as a speaker, are all too inadequate.' "'No, no,' said Mr. Brown but, however that may be, I can only ask you tonight to take the will for the deed and to lend me your attention for a few moments while I endeavour to express to you in words what my feelings are on this occasion. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not the first time that we have gathered together under this hospitable roof, around this hospitable board. It is not the first time that we have been the recipients, or perhaps I had better say the victims, of the hospitality of certain good ladies. He made a circle in the air with his arm and paused. Everyone laughed or smiled at Aunt Kate and Aunt Julia and Mary Jane, who all turned crimson with pleasure. Gabriel went on more boldly. "'I feel more strongly with every recurring year that our country has no tradition which does it so much honour and which it should guard so jealously as that of its hospitality. It is a tradition that is unique as far as my experience goes, and I have visited not a few places abroad, among the modern nations some would say perhaps that with us it is rather a failing than anything to be boasted of but granted even that it is to my mind a princely failing and one that i trust will long be cultivated among us of one thing at least i am sure as long as this one roof shelters the good ladies aforesaid, and i wish from my heart it may do so for many and many a long year to come the tradition of genuine, warm-hearted, courteous Irish hospitality, which our forefathers have handed down to us, and which we in turn must hand down to our descendants, is still alive among us." A hearty murmur of assent ran round the table. It shot through Gabriel's mind that Miss Ivors was not there, and that she had gone away discourteously. And he said with confidence in himself, Ladies and gentlemen, a new generation is growing up in our midst. A generation actuated by new ideas and new principles. It is serious and enthusiastic for these new ideas, and its enthusiasm, even when it is misdirected, is, I believe, in the main sincere. But we are living in a sceptical and, if I may use the phrase, a thought-tormented age, and sometimes I fear that this new generation, educated or hyper-educated as it is, will lack those qualities of humanity of hospitality, of kindly humour, which belonged to an older day. Listening to-night to the names of all those great singers of the past, it seemed to me, I must confess, that we were living in a less spacious age. Those days might, without exaggeration, be called spacious days, and if they are gone beyond recall, let us hope at least that in gatherings such as this we shall still speak of them with pride and affection, "'Still cherish in our hearts the memory of those dead and gone great ones, "'whose fame the world will not willingly let die.' "'Hear, hear,' said Mr. Brown loudly. "'But yet,' continued Gabriel, his voice falling into a softer inflection, "'there are always in gatherings such as this "'sadder thoughts that will recur to our minds, "'thoughts of the past, of youth, of changes, "'of absent faces that we miss here tonight. Our path through life is strewn with many such sad memories. And were we to brood upon them always, we could not find the heart to go on bravely with our work among the living. We have all of us living duties and living affections, which claim, and rightly claim, our strenuous endeavours. Therefore I will not linger on the past. I will not let any gloomy moralising intrude upon us here tonight, Here we are gathered together for a brief moment from the bustle and rush of our everyday routine. We are met here as friends, in the spirit of good fellowship, as colleagues, also to a certain extent, in the true spirit of camaraderie, and as the guests of, what shall I call them, the three graces of the Dublin musical world. The table burst into applause and laughter at this allusion, and Julia vainly asked each of her neighbours in turn to tell her what Gabriel had said. He says we are the three graces, Aunt Julia, said Mary Jane. Aunt Julia did not understand, but she looked up, smiling at Gabriel, who continued in the same vein. Ladies and gentlemen, I will not attempt to play tonight the part that Paris played on another occasion. I will not attempt to choose between them. The task would be an invidious one, and one beyond my poor powers. For when I view them in turn, whether it be our chief hostess herself, whose good heart whose too-good heart has become a byword with all who know her, or her sister, who seems to be gifted with perennial youth, and whose singing must have been a surprise and a revelation to us all tonight, or, last but not least, when I consider our youngest hostess, talented, cheerful, hard-working, and the best of nieces, I confess, ladies and gentlemen, that I do not know to which of them I should award the prize. Gabriel glanced down at his hands, and seeing the large smile in aunt julia's face and the tears which had risen to aunt kate's eyes hastened to his close he raised his glass of port gallantly while every member of the company fingered a glass expectantly and said loudly let us toast them all three together let us drink to their health wealth long life happiness and prosperity and may they long continue to hold the proud and self-won position which they hold in their profession and the position of honour and affection which they hold in our hearts." All the guests stood up, glass in hand, and turning towards the three seated ladies, sang in unison with Mr. Brown as leader, "'For they are jolly gay fellows, for they are jolly gay fellows, for they are jolly gay fellows, which nobody can deny.' Aunt Kate was making frank use of her handkerchief, and even Aunt Julia seemed moved. Freddie Melons beat time with his pudding fork, and the singers turned towards one another, as if in melodious conference, while they sang with emphasis, Unless he tells a lie, unless he tells a lie. Then, turning once more towards their hostesses, they sang, For they are jolly gay fellows, for they are jolly gay fellows, For they are jolly gay fellows, which nobody can deny. The acclamation which followed was taken up beyond the door of the supper-room by many of the other guests, and renewed time after time Freddy Mellins acting as officer with his fork on high. End of Part 2